The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Well, you have probably potentially looked at your bulletin this morning and uh, noticed that we're not in Romans 11. If you are new with us or visiting, um, we are in a study of Romans uh, 9 through 11, and we just started Romans 11 last week, and we have... um, just been a, had a great time together in this book so far. We're, we're not going to do that this morning. And the reason for that is because the elders have been working through a shepherding situation um, that requires us to make another announcement to you this morning regarding church discipline. And, and so we, we felt like it'd be appropriate uh, to revisit that topic. It's been a number of years since I've preached on this topic. I went back to my files, and it's been 11 years since I've preached on the doctrine of uh, church discipline. And so we just thought it'd be appropriate uh, to kind of bring us together along in what the Word of God says about uh, this issue. If you are visiting with us this morning, we are so glad you're here, and, and we just want you as well to know what the Word says about this very, very important topic. One of the reasons that we need to preach on this topic is because it is a practice that has fallen out of favor in many churches today. Fewer and fewer churches are practicing church discipline, and it's largely become a, a neglected church practice entirely in the day in which we live. One writer has said this about this. He said, quote, The decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. No longer concerned with maintaining purity of confession or lifestyle, the contemporary church sees itself as a voluntary association of autonomous members with minimal moral accountability to God, much less to each other. End quote. I think he's right. That this whole idea of church discipline seems to be very negative to most people today, and it seems to be contrary to what many would go to Matthew 7 and say, well, doesn't the Bible say you should not judge one another? Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And many people will say, well, that's not right then for a church to practice church discipline. That, isn't that contrary to Jesus' instructions? And it's not at all. Because Jesus' instructions in that verse have not to do with all judgment. They have to do with hypocritical, self-righteous judgment. That is what's prohibited in that text. Not all judgment and not all reproof. So we live in an age where it's not done much. And that's unfortunate because it is a practice that is clearly commanded in the Scriptures. And the reason for that is because God himself is a judging God. God is a God who reproves his people. God is a God who disciplines his people. And you can see that all the way from the beginning of the scriptures, back in the Old Testament, in the Garden of Eden, God judged Adam and Eve and removed them. He judged his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. He judged nations who were disobedient. In the New Testament, he says that Christians will be judged according to their works. And one day there will be people who don't know Christ, who stand before him in judgment. So God is a God who reproves. He's righteous in his judgment, and God at times gives that responsibility to execute his reproof to the church. He expects the church to participate in that. He expects the church to engage in the process of church discipline, to be the arm, the, the vehicle by which his reproof is carried out. And so a church that is a healthy church will practice church discipline. A church that is committed to God and His Word is committed to this process. A church that is committed to the holiness of God and the glory of God and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ will engage in this process. It's part of Christ's heart for His bride. 
And so because we love Christ and because we love His Word and because we want to be a healthy church, we want to be a church that willingly engages in this, although it's a difficult practice, it is one that we desire to do for the good of the person and for the glory of God. It's much like what happens in your homes. You have children, you know the joy of children, and you also know the pain in your heart when you have watched your precious angel disobey you. And you've seen them clearly guilty when your precious heart enrapturing little Cinderella has disobeyed you and has clearly crossed the line and nailed her sister in the face. In that moment, you need to discipline. Why? Because you love your child. And you love that child and you want them to know that they can't do that. That is contrary to God's word. And so you lovingly discipline her because it is your job as parents to do so. And so a healthy family is where that is practice. We could say it the opposite way. A a family that does not practice loving discipline is not a healthy family. So God has given the same practice to us in his family. We know that because in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved for him by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This is how God relates to his children, how he relates to his people. He loves his children enough to discipline them. In fact, it goes on in that text to say that if he does not discipline them, it means that they probably are not his children. And the reason he does this in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 12, it says he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That is the reason God does this, not to be mean or vindictive, but simply to share in his holiness, to bring us to a point of obedience for our good that it may yield, as it says in that verse, a peaceful fruit of righteousness. God has entrusted that discipline at times to the church. And he's given the responsibility of that practice to the bride of Christ to bring people back to himself. It is not a vindictive practice. It is not a punitive practice. It is not a witch hunt. It is not to get people or hurt people. It is, as one writer says, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. I like that description. It's not a pious group of policemen out to try and find the guilty and bring them to justice. It is rather a broken-hearted group of brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. And for just a few moments this morning, I want to give you some principles on this issue. To just bring some clarity, because it's such a neglected practice today and because it is such a confusing practice today, I want to give you some descriptions from the Word about this process four features of church discipline that will help us clear out the confusion and understand God's heart for his children. Four features of church discipline that will enable us to really understand God's heart in this practice. And I just want to walk through these with you for a few moments this morning, and then I want to make an announcement at the end of our service. Number one, the biblical basis of church discipline. The first feature I want us to understand is the biblical basis of this practice. The scriptures have a lot to say about this issue. 
It is not one of those issues that's spoken of infrequently in the Word of God. It is spoken of frequently. In fact, it finds its roots all the way back in the Old Testament as we look at how God deals with Israel, as He deals with other nations. We can see His reproof and how He instructs them and reproves them. We can see it particularly in the book of Proverbs where He says a number of times, Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 9 verse 8. Proverbs 27, verse 5 says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 28, verse 23 says, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. And so the Word of God is very clear that there are times when reproof needs to take place. Because we love those who are close to us, we love them, we want to see them walking in obedience. There are times then when we must reprove. That's why the Proverbs oftentimes talk about resisting reproof and the seriousness of resisting it and rejecting it. The word uses very strong language to speak to the person who refuses to receive reproof. The Word of God calls them foolish, even stupid. Not because they are, but because the unwillingness to receive counsel Proverbs 20, uh, 12, verse 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. So it's appropriate at times for believers to lovingly engage in the reproving process because we see someone heading down a path that is clearly destructive to their own life. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to take you to what I believe is one of the most comprehensive passages in Scripture that deals with this issue. It is the longest passage in Scripture that deals with it. It is the most detailed passage of Scripture that deals with this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I just want to draw out some principles for you from this text on this process and the practice of church discipline. Notice verse 1. Paul writing to this contaminated and confused group of people in the church at Corinth. And you remember that there was a lot of mess going on in this church. There were people suing each other and they were fighting for food at the Lord's table and they were divided and factious, aligning themselves with various leaders within the church. And then this, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. So in the midst of this very messed up church, in the midst of this contaminated church, and this worldly church, and this confused church about a number of issues, is also this issue where a man is engaged in an immorality that Paul says is of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, which means there's something happening which is so heinous that it's even uncommon amongst unbelievers. What is it? The end of verse 5 tells us that someone has his father's wife. We don't know all the details here, but... uh, seems like this man in this church at Corinth was engaged in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. Uh, We don't know how this happened or how it brought about or what what brought the circumstances to this point, but this man is engaged in some sort of immoral activity with his father's wife, with his stepmother, which essentially is incest. Even though biologically there may not have been a relationship that way, there is many passages in Scripture that deal with the issue of incest clearly prohibited. 
very heinous situation in the life of this church. And yet, think about this. As bad as that situation is, Paul says there's something even greater that's taking place in that church. And that it's the fact that the church has not confronted it. Look at verse 2. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So as horrific as this man's sin was, it really wasn't the worst part of this whole situation. There was something even more tragic going on in this church, and it's the fact that they are arrogant about this situation. They're prideful about it, perhaps even thinking, you know what, hey, we're so open-minded, we can allow this to happen in our church. We're so liberal in our thinking that this is taking place, that we're so being willing to be tolerant of everyone that we're allowing this to take place in the life of our church. And Paul says that's not the, the way it should be happening. This should be a scandal. You should be mourning. You should be grieved over this. Why? The end of verse 2 says why? So that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. And Paul says, if I were there, this is what I would say. Look at verse 3. He says, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul says, I'm not there right now. I'm not presently with you. I'm in another location. We think he was in Ephesus at this point. And, and yet he hears about what's taking place in this church. Someone brings him word about this situation. And he says, I'm not even there. And I know what needs to be done. I'm not even present with you, and I can tell you exactly what needs to take place in this situation. What is it? Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, stop right there. When Paul says that with the power of our Lord Jesus, he actually is saying that Christ is blessing a church that engages in church discipline. This is honoring to Christ. The power of Christ means that Christ is approving of this process. What does he want us to do? What does he want to happen? He says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, I've decided to deliver one to Satan. To deliver means to hand one over. And he says specifically, you deliver that one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And what that means is there is, there is protection within the church. There is an insulation that takes place here within the body. As, as you're a part of the church and you're part of the fellowship that takes place within the bride of Christ, you are within the bounds of safety because there's people here who love you and there's people here who show you what Christ looks like when, in their lives. And there are people here that will pursue you in love and there are people that will surround you in times of trouble. There is protection, there is safety, there is security within the bride of Christ and you can be a part of the church and you can be in an insulated, protected environment because of the sanctifying influences that are around you within the church. And Paul says, in this case, I want you to remove that person from that sanctifying influence that their flesh may be destroyed so that their spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. 
We'll talk more about that in just a moment, but I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. He says, you need to get to a point, church, where you are willing to to remove that person out of your fellowship and put them out into Satan's domain so that they can experience the consequences of their choices so that ultimately they'll repent and come back to the Lord. And the rest of this chapter just describes that process. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or even an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But from those, but those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves." All throughout this chapter, Paul is making it very clear. You remove a sinning, unrepentant believer. You can see it up in verse 2. He says in verse 2 that you should remove this person from your midst. You can see it in verse 5 where he says, I've decided to deliver this one over to Satan. You can see it in verse 7 where he says, clean out the old leaven. You can see it in verse 9 where he says not to associate with immoral people. And you can see it in verse 13 where he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is his point. Sin, unrepented of in the life of the church, That person needs to be lovingly and graciously confronted and then, if unwilling to repent, must be removed. And notice this is for believers. This is for believers. Notice in verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world, the covetous and swindlers and idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. He's saying, you don't discipline unbelievers. They're covetous and they're swindlers and they're immoral because they don't know any different. That's all they know how to live as unbelievers. And so you don't discipline that. For that, they need Christ. So I'm not telling you to discipline the worldly people who don't call themselves believers because verse 11 says, or verse 10 says, you would have to go out of the world to do that, which is not the case. So verse 11 says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. That's who this process is for. It's those who call themselves Christians within the church but are caught in immorality or covetousness or idolatry or being a reviler or a drunkard. He says, that person you're not to eat with. Why? Why discipline a believer, not an unbeliever? Because an unbeliever's need, their greatest need is Christ and the gospel. A believer says they know Christ and have received the gospel and their desire is supposedly to live for Christ and yet if they're unwilling to deal with sin in their life at this level, then their life is a distorted picture of what a Christian ought to be. Doesn't mean we're perfect. None of us are perfect. Doesn't mean we don't slide back into sin. At times we do. But the issue for a believer is always obedience and walking in obedience and loving Christ and confessing sin and repenting of it and making short accounts of sin and living in a life in a way that honors and glorifies Christ. And when that's not the case, then we as a church lovingly pursue those who are caught in those trespasses. Just so you know that this is a pattern taught all throughout the New Testament. I'll just give you a few other references. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. Romans 16, verse 17. 
I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 14 and 15. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may be fearful of sinning. Titus 3 verse 10 and 11. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning and being self-condemned. So this is... This is the heart of God revealed throughout the scriptures and this is what he wants a church that's healthy and loves Christ to do. They're to engage in the practice of church discipline. Number two, that's the biblical basis. Number two, the necessary reasons for this. And I want to walk through just briefly five reasons with you and we won't take a lot of time on each of these and they're not on the slide so if you want to write them down, I encourage you to do that. The first of all, the biblical basis for that. The second of all, we want to see the necessary reasons. And so the first one of these reasons to do this is to restore a sinning brother or sister. To restore a sinning brother or sister. And I want you to understand very clearly this is the heart behind this practice. It is not punitive. As I said, it is not to be harsh or vindictive. It is always restoration. It is always for the good of the person. It is always for their spiritual health. It is always to bring them back to walking with the Lord, to restore them to fellow believers, to restore them to their family, to restore them to the bride of Christ, and ultimately to restore them to the Lord. So that's why this process is critical for us to understand. We as parents, probably you as well, have told our kids so many times, there is... There is safety within the circle of obedience. The, the, the Word of God frames up a boundary, and as long as you live within that boundary, there is safety and there is protection, and you are cared for within that circle. But, but once you cross out of that, there's danger to you. There's danger to your health. There's danger to your, to your walk with the Lord. There's danger to your relationships. When you cross those boundaries, and so we lovingly discipline to restore them to the obedience that enables them to be within that place of safety. And that's the case in the church. It's always restoration. Look at verse 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The reason you do this is not because you want to see them destroyed, but because you want to see them restored. So that their flesh could maybe experience some of the consequences of their sin so that their spirit would be saved and brought back to repentance and walking with the Lord. Matthew 18 verse 15 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. That's the goal. It's to win them. It's to restore them. Galatians 6 verse 1, If anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, that you may not be tempted. The goal is restoration. 
And the word restore there means to set a broken bone. That's what happens when you break a bone and you go to the doctor. What are they going to do? They're going to restore that. They're going to put it back in place. They're going to immobilize it so that it heals and becomes healthy. You're, you're seeking the restoration of something that's broken, and that's exactly the heart behind church discipline as well. It's always that goal. It's never to be harsh or unkind. And I wish, I wish you could sit in an elder meeting. And I wish you could see, uh, first of all, I wish you could hear the discussions. I wish you could hear the quivering voices and the tears streaming down elders' eyes. It's always restoration. It's always to see these individuals brought back to a relationship with Christ. Second reason is to keep sin from spreading to others. Reason number one is to restore a sinning believer or brother or sister. Number two or letter B is to keep sin from spreading to others. Sin is a cancer. You've known people with it. You've seen the devastating effects of it in their bodies as it spreads throughout their system and wreaks havoc in their bodies. Sin does the same thing within church. The church experiences all the effects of sin when it spreads. So look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? It spreads, it permeates. You, you, you know what leaven does, you know what yeast does. It permeates the whole thing and it begins to affect the whole body. And Paul says, therefore, look at verse 7, you need to clean it out. You need to clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And so the reason for this action, another reason, is, is to encourage or prevent sin from spreading to the rest of the church. How do you do that? How does this happen? Listen to 1 Timothy 5.20. I just read it a minute ago relating to elders. It says, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. And so when, when there is an announcement made about someone who's in, caught in sin, what, what that does within the church is it creates an attitude that makes the church aware of the seriousness of sin that should instill within our hearts a fear of sinning because we see the consequences. I'll tell you, every time I sit in an elder meeting and I hear these things and we talk about these kinds of things, that there is... There is fear placed in my heart. And anytime someone stands up here and makes an announcement about church discipline, there is fear placed in my heart because I know my heart is fickle and I know my heart can easily be prone to sin like anyone else's heart can be. I'm not immune to that. I know how insidious sin is and I know how little compromises can creep into my life and I can begin to justify my sin and I can begin to say it's not that big a deal. That happens to me and then anytime I hear these discussions... I'm brought back. It's like it grabs me by the collar and shakes me and says, Todd, that, that could be you if you're not careful. It draws me up short and makes me very, very fearful of letting sin get a foothold in my life. 
That's what it's meant to do. That all of us would be fearful of sinning. So it's meant to restore a sinning believer. It's meant to keep sin from spreading to the rest of the church. Let her see, thirdly, it's meant to protect the purity of the church. It's meant to protect the purity of the church. Look at verse 7 again. 1 Corinthians 5, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. What does that mean? He means that the church... The redeemed believers brought together within the bride of Christ are are described as unleavened, meaning you're pure, you're holy. The bride of Christ is a holy entity declared righteous by Christ, and therefore he wants the church to conduct itself in holiness, which is their position. He wants us to live out in practice what is our actual position. So, church discipline is one of the ways in which you seek to purify the bride, to keep it holy, to keep it seeking Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says that we were saved for this. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That's why God saved you, beloved. And if there are secret sins in your life, and there's closeted sin, and there's skeletons in the life of of your life, and you are seeking to cover those things up and pretend that they're not there, listen, Christ wants you to deal with that. Because if you're believer your position is holiness and he wants you then to act that out same thing in the church so god has given us this process first to restore sinning believers secondly to keep sin from spreading third to protect the purity of the church fourthly he's given this process to us to prevent god's discipline on the church Another reason he's given this process to us is to prevent God's discipline upon the church. And what I mean by that is if a church will not practice this, then they essentially invite the discipline of God upon their life corporately. Church discipline is meant to enable the church to be an effective witness in the world. If we cannot and will not deal with sin in our church, within our midst, then that keeps us from being the kind of witness that God has called us to be in the, in, in the world. Let me give you a couple examples. Revelation chapter 2. Don't turn there, but just listen. Revelation chapter 2, speaking of the church at Pergamum, says this, verses 14 and 16. But I have a few things against you because there are, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have come, have some who in the same way may hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Christ is saying to the church there, you have sin in your camp, you have people engaged in false teaching, and you have people committing acts of immorality, and so you need to deal with that, or I'm going to come quickly and make war with you. No church wants to hear that. Revelation 2, verses 20 to 23. Speaking of the church of Thyatira, they also entertained those who committed acts of immorality and ate things sacrificed to idols. And God says through Christ to her, I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts unless they repent of their deeds. It's his way of saying, I'm going to bring discipline upon your church if you won't take a stand against the seriousness of sin. 
So God wants a church, a healthy church, to practice that, to prevent his discipline upon them. Last, the fifth reason is to reflect God's glory and holiness. To reflect God's glory and holiness. God himself is holy. He wants his bride to be holy. He wants his bride to be holy so that they can show the watching world what a transformed life looks like, so that they can live in a way that shows that they've been redeemed by God and give him glory because of the work that he's done in their life. Matthew chapter 5, you know these verses well. Verses 14 to 16, you're a light of the world. A city set high on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put under it, it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's how God wants us to live. 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, Glorify God in the day of visitation. God wants us to live holy lives individually and corporately so that other people can watch and see what a transformed life looks like, come to Christ, and they themselves then give God glory forever because of the work that he's done in their lives. And so church discipline is a means of dealing with all those things and for all those reasons. There's two more points I want to show you. These will be very quick. Number three is the specific steps. The specific steps. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, the specific steps. I know you know these verses well, and I know you know the practice well, but let me just remind you again of what Christ says about this. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, step number one is listed there for us. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. That's how it starts. You see someone in sin, caught in sin, in an in a, in a unrepentant pattern of, of living, you in your care for them as a fellow brother and sister in Christ, you go to them and you show them their fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. The process stops. Very easy. By the way, that should be happening all the time. That level of church discipline ought to be happening at all times within the church. There ought to be the kind of relationships we have with one another where you lovingly come alongside one another and care for them and point out sin. I've had people do that. People here, people sitting in this room have done that, and I'm so grateful for that because it keeps me having short accounts of sin. It should be happening all the time. If that doesn't work, though, if that person will not repent at that point, step number two, verse 16, you take witnesses. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. These are not necessarily witnesses who saw the actual sin take place, but witnesses there that are uh, going along in the process to, to show the seriousness of the sin and to call that person to repentance. If they repent, the issue's done, you move on, it's forgotten. If not, step three, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church. The purpose of this is to mobilize the church, to mobilize the body, to pray for this person, to care for them, to love them, to pursue them, to text them, to contact them, to, to plead with them, to call them back to obedience. This is a critical step that involves the whole church. And you have an obligation as the church to participate in this. This is something that he expects the whole church to engage in. It's not just something the leaders do at this point. It's now the whole church is involved. 
And if they listen at that point, the process stops. If not, you move to step four, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which means that person is now removed from the fellowship of that church. They're removed from that safety, that protection, that care, that insulated uh, body that is a place of safety. They're removed from that and put out to experience the consequences of their sin. Those are the steps. Very simple, very straightforward. Not always easy to walk through, not always easy to know which, which step we're at, but that is the process that Christ has given us. Last, number four, are the essential attitudes. The essential attitudes. By what spirit or attitude should this be done? Always with gentleness and always with love. Galatians 6.1 says, If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. This is the attitude with which this process is to be practiced. Gentleness, kindness, patience, loving attitude towards one another. So these are the attitudes. You say, does it work? Of course it works. God wouldn't give us a process if it didn't work. You say, I've never seen it or heard it work. I want to read something to you. It's kind of long, but just listen. Many years ago, I was excommunicated from my church, and I'm thankful to God for it. You probably wouldn't expect to hear that reaction, but if the church had not honored God's word, I'm afraid to even wonder what the state of my life, and more importantly, my soul, might be in today. My removal from church membership directly led to, res- to God's restorative work in my life. So now I'm a cheerleader for church discipline. As you consider my testimony, be encouraged to appropriately exercise loving church discipline when a fellow church member is no longer walking in step with his confession. My story is like so many others. I grew up in a faithful Christian home. I attended a gospel preaching church. In every way, I looked and acted the part of a good Christian kid. I confessed my faith in Christ at an early age and was baptized a few years later. I was a popular member of our youth group and played on the worship team. I even would have affirmed the gospel in my own conversion. But in a state of cognitive dissonance that only the deception of sin can explain, I was simultaneously pursuing pleasures of the world What started as an obsession with pornography led to increasing degrees of immorality and fornication. But the double life was exhausting. And eventually my transgressions were exposed. At first I manufactured remorse when I was confronted by other Christians in an attempt to convince them that I was repentant. But as I continued to pursue my lust, my heart became more hardened and I no longer bothered to cover my sin. My hypocritical life was known to many members of my church and I didn't want or know how to change. Here I was, claiming to be a Christian, faithfully attending the church and continually fornicating with little hope of repentance. The elders, many of whom had known me for most of my life, patiently loved and pleaded with me. But I continued to embrace my sin. My church made the hard biblical decision to purge the evil person from their flock. The next six or seven years were sad. I tried to find my satisfaction in the approval of others and physical pleasure. However, after my father died, I accepted an invitation to attend a gospel-centered church where membership and discipline were practiced with fidelity. When I started attending this new church, I was quick to disclose the fact that I was still technically under discipline at my old church. The elders of both churches conferred, and my new church agreed to take on the stewardship of my soul. 
Both churches modeled Christ or Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 13 to aim for restoration. I was reading my Bible, attending service, and trying to pray. I moved in with two brothers from the church. Still, I never thought I would be able to say no to the sin that had ruled my thoughts and body for so long. Even when it had been months since my last dalliance, I was terrified. I thought it was inevitable that I would return to my sins of the past, and yet I stayed on track. That narrow path was hedged by loving friends and elders. Even after 10 months of outward repentance. I wasn't convinced my heart had actually changed. I claimed that I wanted to love Christ more than my sin, but years of falling taught me to doubt myself. My eventual membership interview was a turning point. The presiding elder listened to my rambling, defeatist story and then had a simple observation that still rings in my ears. Brother, what you're describing is called repentance. I'm going to recommend you for membership. Those words fell with the effect of a grace bomb. Doubts diminished and hope flooded my heart. I could see so clearly my efforts that would never save me. In fact, God had been at work in spite of me. By God's grace, I continued to turn from my sin and my new church affirmed fruit in keeping with repentance. I was voted into membership and began to serve and thrive. A few months later, I was invited to my old church to share on a Sunday morning. And I'll never forget the moment that I was publicly invited to share the Lord's Supper with them. This was a picture of the restoration Paul celebrates in 2 Corinthians. My experience of church discipline leaves me with few observations, a few observations and exhortations. Church leaders, honor God's word. Expel the immoral brother. You have to give an account and you do not want to be a shepherd who allows a wolf to live and feed among your flock. Teach your congregation to regard God's word as holy regardless of how uncomfortable or unpopular church discipline is. Show them that in order to have gospel unity, we must be willing to part with those who are walking in ways that bring dishonor to Christ. Church members, honor God's word. Expel the immoral brother. But don't wash your hands of them. Speak the truth. Be clear that your love for the friend is not diminished, but love is now focused on one thing, the preservation of their eternal soul. Invite them to dinner, but not to parties. Don't call them brother or sister. Looking back, it strikes me how church discipline benefits not only the unrepentant believer, but also the faithful church. It's good for Christians when the word of God is revered and obeyed, even when it's hard and unpopular. By nature, Christ's true church is for blood-bought followers of Christ. Even though church discipline has been painted as heartless and divisive, it actually cultivates unity because it clarifies who's on what team. To this day, I don't know if I was a backslidden convert or if I was a deceived non-Christian. Either way, church discipline served to expose my hypocrisy. It forced me to deal with the claims of Christ and God used membership and exclusion to show me that life in the world without God is miserable and my only hope is Christ. Does it work? Yeah. It works. And that's why we want to be faithful to this practice. Pray with me. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your loving discipline of us. Lord, we'd all admit that 
we fall into sin, and at times we fall into it hard. And yet we thank you that in your love for us, you pursue us, and you graciously draw us back to yourself. And we thank you so much for that. We thank you for the process that you've instituted for your church to enable those who are caught in sin to be called back for your honor and for your glory. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.